In Luke chapter 17, verse 19, Jesus says to this guy, um, your faith has saved you. You know, in scripture, everything seems to boil down to faith, as if faith just does everything. Morton Kelsey told a story about a traveler who was traveling along, and he came to an abyss, a, a, a chasm, and he was surprised to find a tightrope attached to the edge of the chasm, and he looked out on the tightrope, and he saw a man walking toward him, an acrobat, a tightrope walker, uh, pushing a wheelbarrow, and there was a man in the wheelbarrow. He, he, got, he, he got across the tightrope, to, to the traveler, and once he and, and the man in the wheelbarrow stood on the side with a smile on his face, the, the acrobat said to the traveler, he said, do you believe that I could do that again? And the traveler said, yeah, I, I do believe that you could do that again. He asked me, he said, do you believe that I could do that again? He said, yeah, I believe you could do that again. And, and then the acrobat said, so get in. <laughs> Well, faith makes you get in. Faith is uh, what makes you move. Uh, faith is what causes you to obey. To have faith in God is to trust God. So if God says don't have sex outside of marriage, you don't have sex outside of marriage. If God says forgive your enemies, you forgive your enemies. It may not be your judgment, but if you trust him, you obey his judgment, for you trust that his judgment is good. Faith makes you move, and faith connects. Just about everybody has some sort of faith. Everybody that's anybody does have faith. Every scientist has faith in reason. Because you know, you can't reason your way to reason. You have to trust. Uh, you must trust that there is reason. Most atheists have faith. I think they, a lot of them have faith in love. In fact, they don't believe in God or your description of God because they do believe in love. Every conservative, every liberal has faith in, in a thing they call the good. That's what they argue about it constantly, over and over. Faith, faith connects. So if you have no faith, you're utterly alone. To know another person, you must have faith that there are other persons. I mean, you must have faith that the same uh, universe that exists inside of you, that universe of feelings and thoughts and passions and emotions and joys and sorrows, it exists in the people that you see around you. To have no faith is to have no goodness, no love, uh, no reason. To have no faith is to be utterly alone in utter darkness. But to have faith, well, to have faith in a world of faith, uh, to have perfect trust in a world of completely trustworthy people, well, that must be heaven. But imagine if you had no faith in a universe upheld by faith. I mean, imagine if you thought that you were alone in absolute control taking a nap, only to open your eyes and discover that you were actually in a wheelbarrow on a tightrope over an abyss being held by an acrobat. Well, I mean, if you didn't know the acrobat and, and trust the acrobat, what would that, that would just be like scary as hell, right? 
According to scripture, every subatomic particle, every particle in your body is constantly willed into, an exi into existence by an observer who is love, with a will who is reason, logos in Greek. So if you don't trust that he is good, even heaven might feel like hell. And of course, that turned out to be the problem with Eve and that first Adam. They didn't have faith that God is good, for they did not have the knowledge of good. So how could they have faith that God is good if they didn't have the knowledge of good? And you see, that's what the traveler needs to know. Not simply, what is good, but is this tightroper, tightrope walker, is, is he good? And not simply good at walking on tightropes, but is he good to me? In other words, does he, he love me, right? Because if you don't believe that he'd like die for you, you sure as hell don't want to get in that wheelbarrow. And yet not getting in the wheelbarrow might just leave you, well, lonely, lonely as hell, stuck on this side of the chasm. Well, anyway, that was all just preamble to the sermon. Luke chapter 9, 17, verse 19, Jesus said, your faith has saved you. Uh, Luke 17, verse 11, and on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. As you know, there was like a cultural chasm between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds and, and traitors. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 12, and as he entered a village, Jesus was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Ten lepers, which reminds us of the Ten Commandments, that is the law. In the law, Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, uh, there are details regarding lepers. A leper was commanded to dwell outside the city, which was outside Jerusalem, which is outside the temple. Wherever a leper went, they were commanded to cry out, unclean, unclean. For if anyone came in contact with a leper, they were also uh, Unclean. In scripture, leprosy refers to skin disease, uh, really pretty much any kind of skin disease. So that can be everything from like psoriasis to Hansen's disease, which we now refer to as leprosy. That disease separates a person from society and even separates a person from themselves because it causes numbness in the extremities in the members so that a person doesn't feel the pain in their own members and therefore neglects and, and does not care for their own members. Well, a leper is disconnected and waiting to die. And these ten are lepers. These lepers stand at a distance on the other side of a chasm and they cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now that's a rather disappointing thing to say, don't you think? Leviticus 13 requires all leprous people to report to the priests. <laughs> the priests were to them, examine them, and declare them clean or unclean. Leviticus 14, it really gets weird. 
For if someone was unclean and then becomes clean, if they're, if they're healed, uh, the priest was to perform this elaborate ritual involving two birds, an earthen vessel, living water, which means running water, cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet yarn, which is also translated scarlet worm. One bird is killed over the living water in an earthen vessel, and the other bird is washed in the blood of the first bird along with the wood, the scarlet worm, and, and the hyssop, washed and then set free. And then, after seven days, they're to offer two male lambs and one female lamb, a, a guilt offering, a sin offering, and, and, a, and a burnt offering, and nobody knew why. <laughs> but they all experienced why. Atonement involved a story of passion, pain, death, and resurrection, even in your own earthen vessel, spanning like a period of seven days. Jesus says, go show yourselves to the priests. And, and as they went, okay, they're on their way to showing themselves to the priests. They, they, they weren't healed while they were there with Jesus. As, the, as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his feet at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, a good Jew would not fall on his face before another man, um, giving him thanks. He was only falling on his face before God, giving God thanks. And, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise, doxeo, give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And Soren Kierkegaard asked this question. If his faith made him well, what made the other nine well? Well, I guess Jesus, the Lamb of God, must have made them well. He cleansed them with his blood, and yet they weren't as well as the one. And actually, literally, Jesus said to the one, your faith has saved you. That's sozo, the Greek. Your faith has saved you. So the nine were healed of leprosy, but it appears that the one was healed of, well, far more. He's not only saved from leprosy, he's saved from not having faith. I mean, he has what Adam and Eve did not have. He, he knows the good and has faith in the good. Jesus is the logic of love, the, the logos of God. He's not a law, but a person, and he himself is the good. The, the Samaritan knows the good and has faith in the good. Now, now it seems the nine also had faith, right? I mean, because they went, they had, they had some sort of faith. They, they, they appear to have done what Jesus said. They, they had some sort of faith. They had faith in the system, or maybe it was their ability to work the system. They had some sort of faith, but not the faith that saves. Not the kind of faith that gets you across the chasm. Not the kind of faith that makes you enjoy the ride in the wheelbarrow, on the tightrope, over the chasm. Well, the next thing Jesus says is this. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Like, 
it's at hand. But, but I guess without faith, you can't feel it, sense it, or know it. You're, you're cut off from it like some sort of spiritual leper or something. So you see, faith not only saves you, faith is salvation. Faith connects you to the kingdom. And Jesus says, your faith has saved you. And so it's at this point that preachers say, okay, well then, you better all choose some faith. Y'all better choose faith. But what exactly is faith? And how do you choose it? Well, recently I watched a fascinating lecture online. In it, neuroeconomist Paul Zak makes a very compelling case that, well, this is faith. Can you see that? It's awfully dark. Um, that's the chemical formula for, for faith for oxytocin. Let's see if we can get a picture of the molecule up here. They call it oxytocin. Well, there, there's a picture, the chemical formula. Now there's the, the molecule, oxy, oxytocin. It's a hormone, not oxycotton. Francis won't even point that out, but <laughs> oxytocin. It's a hormone found in our blood. Neurologists call it the moral molecule or the trust molecule. In this, this TED lecture that I, that I watched, Paul Zak explains that healthy societies are built on trust. And he details these fascinating experiments run by neuroeconomists like himself, experiments that measure trust. And they found that when someone does something kind or, or gracious or merciful, when they do something merciful to you, your brain max manufactures oxytocin and oxytocin causes you to trust and faith is trust. In a double blind study using a placebo, they demonstrated that oxytocin nasal spray increases charitable donations by 50%. And that's why the board has voted to install oxytocin dispensers in the ventilation system of the church. <laughs> Not really. But really about the oxytocin. And this is fascinating because what does it mean? It means oxytocin can make you get in a wheelbarrow pushed by an acrobat on a tightrope over an abyss. But now that shouldn't surprise us because two or three pints of Guinness Stout can also make you get in a wheelbarrow pushed by an acrobat on a tightrope over an abyss. And not only that, it can make you feel like everybody in the bar is your best friend. <laughs> but now this line of thinking makes us kind of nervous, doesn't it? I mean, it's a little bit bothersome. Especially for us Americans, because we like to think that we have this thing called free will. So if faith is a choice, well, we think it must be our own free choice. We like to think we analyze the data using our extensive knowledge of good and evil, and then we make a free, responsible choice. We like to think we make our own choice. I remember standing in front of my bedroom closet long about 1969. I looked inside and I saw all these pants, brown, green, gray, straight, regular pants. And I chose these pants. <laughs> 
or a pair of pants, found this on the internet, but a pair of pants very similar uh, to these pants. Tight, tight bell bottoms with uh, vertical stripes, my pants. My mom did not like the pants, but she let me choose those pants and I distinctly remember thinking to myself, how could anyone be so blind and stupid as to not choose these pants? <laughs> how could anybody be so blind and stupid that they would choose plain straight leg pants? How could an entire generation, like my parents' generation, be so stupid, I condemn them for their bad choices. And I congratulate me for my good choices. I'm proud of my choice. <laughs> but was that my choice? Or was it Ringo Starr's choice? And Jim Morrison's choice? and the post-war generation's choice. I mean, it may have even been a little bit of testosterone's choice that wanted me to choose something different than my mom and think it was my choice. Or oxytocin's uh, choice because some pretty girl in third grade smiled at me wearing my bell-bottom vertically striped pants. You could say it was my choice. And I wanted to think it was my choice, but I didn't create the choice. I wasn't what we would call a, a free, responsible chooser. It was not a free, responsible choice, what we would call a responsible choice. Forces far beyond my comprehension and my control created that choice and were responsible for that choice. And faith is a choice. So are you proud of that choice? See, maybe that night at church camp when you went down front, dropped your knees and said, God, I can't save myself. I trust you to save me. Maybe you were high on oxytocin. Maybe even Guinness Stout. Probably fashion. It's what the, your friends were doing. I mean, maybe it wasn't what we would call a free, responsible decision. And, and, and so you, 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 you really can't look down on other people's decisions or be proud of your decision. And now if you're offended, I want you to think twice about why you're offended. Because see, it's not just me that would argue that you are not the author of that choice. You're not the author of that decision. Now listen, oxytocin is also not the author of that decision. Fashion is not the author of that decision. Oxytocin may be involved in that decision, but it's not the author of that decision, and, and maybe there is an author of oxytocin. Oxytocin may encourage you to trust, but logically it can't be trust, for then you couldn't trust oxytocin. Think of it this way. You can comprehend oxytocin, but you cannot comprehend trust. You can only comprehend everything else with trust. Or, or put it this way, um, faith is a choice. But you can't choose faith if faith is the choice with which you choose. See, faith or trust is like the ground of all knowing. So oxytocin and Guinness Stout may open your heart to trust, but they aren't trust. They may help you trust, but they can't tell you if what you trust is good. For instance, they might encourage you to trust a snake. <laughs> Adam and Eve trusted a snake. Every little child is incredibly vulnerable to trusting snakes. 
In Scripture, faith isn't just trust in anything. Faith is trust in God. And God alone is good. Well, I'm just pointing out that faith is trust, and trust is a choice, but you're not the author and the finisher of that choice. So it would be stupid to look down on other people's choices as if you were proud of your own choice, even though it's the right choice. I mean, there are definitely right choices and wrong choices. You just can't be proud of yourself for making them. Let me put it another way. This is not faith. (laughs) This is faith. Think with me. Jesus said, your faith has saved you. And yet Jesus knew the scriptures, Isaiah 43, 11. I am the Lord and beside me there is no savior. Hosea 13, verse four. I am the Lord your God and beside me there is no savior. The name Jesus, it means God is salvation or God saves. So if we take scripture seriously, the faith that saves you must be Jesus, the Lord God, that saves you. So if you think you're responsible for your faith, if you think you create your faith, you think that you create the Lord and you're responsible for the Lord and therefore save the Lord, which means you can't be saved by the Lord. And that's like incredibly messed up, isn't it? Jesus is the author and the finisher of your faith, Hebrews 12, verse two. And faith is the substance of things for, hoped for, Hebrews 11, one. Faith is the Lord God in you, like his spirit in you, like that eternal seed we preached about a few weeks ago, planted uh, within you. It's your faith, it is your faith, because he gave it to you. But you didn't create the faith. I think the faith is creating you. Faith is the Lord God willing and working within you, Philippians 2.13. So how did he get in you? (laughs) Such that you would get in his wheelbarrow and ride across the tightrope pushed by the acrobat over the chasm. How'd that happen? In 1859, the famous French acrobat, Charles Blondin, walked across the chasm of Niagara Falls on a tightrope. 10,000 cheering fans awaited for him uh, on the American side because he was was crossing from the Canadian side. When he arrived, they all cheered. He quieted the crowd and he said, I'm going back across the falls. And this time I'm taking a man with me on my back. And then he asked the question, like the character in Morton Kelsey's story asked the question, he said, now how many of you believe I can do it? And they all said, we believe, we, we believe. He said, do you believe I can do it? They said, yes, yes, yes. The crowd worked into a frenzy. He kept asking them, uh, do you believe that I can cross the falls with a man on my back? And they all cried, yes, 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 we believe. And then he quieted the crowd and he said, so, who will be that man? Of course, nobody moved. (laughs) Everybody was silent. And then one man raised his hand and he said, I will be that man. His name was Harry Colcord. Now, Harry Colcord knew something about Charles Blondin. He knew Charles Blondin was good. 
not just good at walking across Niagara Falls on a tightrope, but good at loving Harry Colcord. Harry was Blondin's friend, Blondin's friend and manager. Blondin had created Harry's trust. He had created Harry's trust with a story of friendship, a story of love, a story of mercy. It probably involved Guinness Stout and oxytocin, but it wasn't just Guinness Stout and oxytocin. It was love giving birth to faith. And so Harry got in the wheelbarrow. (laughs) That is, he climbed on... Charles back and they crossed the chasm. December 21st, 1943, a 20-year-old American pilot named Charlie Brown was flying a severely damaged B-17 bomber over Germany. The nose was uh, destroyed. One of the engines was out. Much of the tail, including the rear gun and the gunner, had been blown away. His crew was badly wounded, and he had no instruments. He was lost. The plane was barely flying, just a few hundred feet above the ground. The original squadron of 13 German fighters that had destroyed the B-17 had left, assuming that Charlie Brown and his crew were just now good as dead. Wounded and bleeding, Charlie hoped against hope. And then he looked over his shoulder and he saw his worst fear. One of Germany's top fighter pilots in an ME-109 only 20 feet away. Franz Stigler needed only one more kill to earn the coveted Knight's Cross. Charlie Brown shut his eyes, opened them again in disbelief because he was in a wheelbarrow on a tightrope over a chasm and the man that held the wheelbarrow was his worst enemy. <laughs> a man he had been sent to kill. Franz Stigler looked at the plane, and Franz Stigler looked Charlie Brown in the eye, and he made a judgment. He took his hand off the trigger and saluted Charlie. Even though two of the B-17's guns were still intact, and even though he could have been executed for his act of mercy, Franz Stigler escorted Charlie Brown to the English Channel over the chasm and onto sanctuary in England. Charlie Brown and his crew kept the story a secret for years, knowing that Franz Stigler could be executed for his act of mercy. But 53 years later, 53 years later, not knowing who that was or exactly what had happened, Charlie Brown wrote an article in a journal, and Franz Stigler read the article. To make a long story short, they became best of friends. A few years later, Charlie Brown held a reunion banquet for the crew of the B-17, and and they came. They came with their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren, and the guest of honor at the banquet was Franz Stigler. Mike Owens, who was at our church retreat a couple weeks ago, he told me the story over a pint of stout down the hills, my, my stout. But I remember he, he leaned forward and he said something like this, just think, Peter, just, just think. All those people at the banquet, they owed their entire existence to the mercy of Franz Stigler, and they didn't do one thing to earn it. And all those people chose to come to that great banquet because they had faith in Franz Stigler. It was their faith, but they didn't create the faith. Franz Stigler created the faith with an act of mercy. Franz Stigler's judgment created their faith in Franz Stigler. 
2,000 years ago, the commander of God's army, king of kings, lord of lords, the eschatos Adam, he hung on a tree, a tree of law. The wood was very likely cedar. The blood ran down the wood like scarlet yarn. Caiaphas had prophesied one man must die for the sins of the people, like the bird that dies so that the other can fly free, wash clean in the blood of the first. Jesus said he would create in us, you know, livers, rivers <laughs> and livers, rivers of living water. So an earthen vessel of wrath becomes a vessel of mercy and Jesus destroys our sin. You know, he destroys our sin like the scarlet worm destroys and devours the corpses in the valley of Gehenna. Jesus is the guilt offering, the sin offering, the burnt offering. He's every sacrifice and offering. He's the lamb whose, whose blood is spread over the lintel of the door with a branch of hyssop. He's the lamb. He's the high priest. He's the temple. He's the sanctuary. And his body is the torn veil. And we are the ones that tear that veil. Every time we tear this bread, we tear the veil. Every time we violate love and truth and, and mercy and goodness, we violate him. Every time we sin, he, we, 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 we pound the nails. We have made him our enemy, and get this, he is holding the wheelbarrow. The universe. I mean, even physicists are starting to say this. Every particle in your body is constantly upheld by him. He is God's word of infinite power. And look, we crucify him. And he lifts his head to heaven and he cries, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he delivers up his spirit and his spirit descends upon the broken and fertile soil of this earth like an eternal seed sown in the depths of your heart. He's life. And on the tree in the garden of the cross, we tried to take the knowledge of the good by taking his life. And on the tree in the garden of the cross, he forgave us his life, and now we know he is good, and so we can trust the good. And his story becomes your story. History is his story, and he makes his story your story. He's God's judgment. And God's judgment is mercy. And that story of mercy is called the gospel. And with the gospel, God creates your faith. God's judgment creates your faith. Your faith does not create God's judgment. You did not decide to say the sinner's prayer at camp, and then God decided to subject creation to futility, consign all men to disobedience, be born in a baby, put in a manger, and then crucified on a cross. No, God's judgment is eternal. And the lamb is slain from the foundation of the world, but displayed on the cross in 33 AD. So you would go to camp in 1983 AD feeling guilty for looking at porn, and yet kind of jacked up on oxytocin in religious fashion. So at the right moment, when the soil had been well-tilled and fertilized, the Lord would plant an eternal seed in you, and you would drop to your knees saying, God, save me. And your faith has saved you. But not just then. <laughs> Faith is saving you now and all the time. For any time you love, you see, it's really not you. It's faith. 
God is love. And, and when you love, it's faith in you loving. And when you stand in his presence, it will be faith. You won't shrink in terror and shame. You'll say, oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, God. All glory, praise, and honor belong to you, Lord God. And, and you'll be home at the great banquet in honor of the one who gave his life for you. In honor of grace, you'll be finished in the image of God and filled with faith. So Jesus looks down at this Samaritan guy at his feet, giving glory to God, and he says, your faith has saved you. But what about the nine? Why didn't Jesus say that their faith had saved them? And think about this. What are they doing? Well, aren't they doing exactly what Jesus said they should be doing? They're presenting themselves to the priest in the temple in Jerusalem We'll do that thing with the birds and the earthen vessel and the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the living water and, and the lambs. Well, what about the Samaritan? Did the Samaritan uh, do the thing that Jesus said he should be doing? He turned back, so no. Or, or maybe yes, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Because who is Jesus? Well, he's the high priest. And everything they did in that temple was about Jesus. He is the temple. His body is, is, is the torn veil. He's the temple. Everything they did in that temple was about him. He's the Lamb of God. And now that's an incredible picture, an incredible to, thing to chew on and to ponder, to, to think about. The temple rituals told Jews about the good, but Jesus is the good. The temple rituals told the story of mercy, but Jesus is the mercy. He's the plot, he's the mercy. So maybe the nine thought the sacrifices cleansed them of sin, but the sacrifices didn't cleanse anyone of sin. What did they do? They tell the story of how we are all cleansed of our sin. Maybe the nine had faith then in their ability to fulfill the law, and so they gave glory to themselves. But the Samaritan had faith in Christ's ability to fulfill the law, and so he gave glory to Jesus. Maybe the nine had faith in religion, and so they weren't saved. And the Samaritan had faith in, in Jesus. And Jesus means God is Salvation. The nine Jews had faith in religion, and so what happened? Religion hijacked their faith, hijacked their faith in God. The one Samaritan had faith in God, for he no longer had really any faith in religion. And why was that? Well, study history, and you realize religion just hadn't gone really well for the Samaritans. According to Paul, that seems to be the purpose of religion and the law. It tells us what is good and reveals that we aren't good. So we would look to the one who is good and say, save me. You know, I did a study in Luke of all the people to whom Jesus said, your faith has saved you. And according to my little study in Luke, 
you are most likely to get saved if you're a leprous, blind Samaritan hooker with an unstoppable menstrual flow. <laughs> and you see, that kind of makes some sense because leprous, blind Samaritan hookers with unstoppable menstrual flows might be the least likely to trust in their own ability to make a good choice and most likely to trust in the good God's ability to choose them, cleanse them, save them, and make them, make in them a, a, a good choice in the image of God. So maybe the nine Jews thought that their faithful obedience created God's judgment. I mean, after all, they were the ones that provided the birds and the lambs. And all of that describes the story of God's judgment. But the Samaritan knew Jesus is God's judgment. And God's judgment is mercy. All ten lepers asked Jesus for mercy. And Jesus had mercy on all ten lepers, but the faith of the nine was hijacked by religion. The Samaritan was done with religion, and so he could have faith in God. The nine don't give glory to God, for they think their faith has created God's mercy. But the Samaritan gives glory to God, for mercy has created his faith. In other words, He's saved. You know, sometimes I really wonder if most Christians are saved. Because we seem to think our faith creates God's mercy. Which means we don't have faith in God's mercy, which means we don't have the kind of faith that saves us and is salvation. Well, what do we have faith in? Well, we have faith in good advice. That's why a lot of people come to church. They want good advice. We have faith in good advice and our ability to follow that advice. In other words, we have faith in laws and our ability to fulfill the laws. In other words, we have faith in the knowledge of good and evil and our ability to choose the good and then do the good. And so we're proud of our ability to choose faith, which means we don't have faith. And we don't have compassion for sinners, faithless sinners. Why? Well, we're jealous of sinners. And we're offended when God saves sinners because deep down inside we think we have saved ourselves, which means we haven't been saved and don't know really what salvation is. You know, if you really want to understand the story of Jesus and the 10 lepers, go home this afternoon and read Romans chapters nine through 11. In those chapters, Paul reveals that he proclaims salvation to the Gentiles in order that Jews might be saved. Sometimes I wonder if we, if I, am supposed to proclaim salvation to the world in order that Christians might be saved. I do think the Bible teaches that one day all people will be saved, for all people will have faith. And now some will say, well, wait a minute, Peter. Faith is a choice. And I would, I would say, well, well, exactly. Faith is a choice. Faith is God's choice. God's choice to create his choice in us. God's choice to make us in his own image. You see, God has free will. And he wills that you would will the good in freedom. And he's the good. He wills that you would have faith. 
Bishop A.T. Robinson wrote this. It's one of my favorite quotes. It's from the end of his book, In the End, God. He writes, to man there remains two ways. And the one that is crowded is still the one that leads to destruction. And many there be that find it. But at some point on that road, be it far or near, each one finds also something or rather someone else. It is a figure stooping beneath the weight of a cross. Lord, where are you going? asks every man. And the answer comes, I am going to Rome, to Moscow, to New York, to be crucified afresh in your place. And no man in the end can bear that encounter forever. For it is an encounter with a power than which there can be nothing greater, a meeting with omnipotent love itself. This love will take no man's choice from him, for it is precisely his choice that it wants, or I would say it is precisely his choice that it longs to create. Love's will to lordship is inexhaustible and ultimately unendurable. The sinner must yield. God has exposed the strong right arm by which he has declared that he will curb the nations. And lo, it is pierced by nails, stained with blood, and riveted in impotence. Is it to us to an offense and foolishness? Yet this is the authentic quality of love's omnipotence. The weakness of God is stronger than men, than any man. For if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. Christ, in Origen's old words, remains on the cross so long as one sinner remains in hell. That is not speculation. It is a statement grounded in the very necessity of God's nature. God is love. And everything he does is mercy. He creates your faith with mercy. His story of mercy. And so on that night, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper and having given thanks, and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. Do you see it? His story in you. And your story becomes his story. One act of mercy. We all receive the same mercy, and yet look at all the stories of mercy. He is writing a unique story of mercy in each one of you because he is creating each one of you as a unique child, a unique man or woman of faith so that at the banquet we will all sing our song of praise and it will all come together in a brilliant chorus to the glory of the Lamb that stands on the throne, the one who loves each of us with all he has and all he is in Jesus. Behold the mercy of God for you. So give glory to God and know that your faith has saved you. Let's worship. So do you believe that? Yes. <laughs> yeah, everybody was like, well, kinda. <laughs> um, 
Do you get a wheelbarrow? Because yeah. uh, if you believe that, then well, then get in the wheelbarrow. Get in the wheelbarrow and don't be proud of yourself for getting in the wheelbarrow. Be proud of Jesus. Don't be proud of your own obedience. Give glory to God for your own obedience because it's good. Don't be proud of your faith. Give glory to God for your faith. In fact, I think that's how you plant your faith and get more faith and more faith and more faith. You know, Paul wrote this. He wrote, give thanks to God in all things. Americans struggle with that. Because like, give thanks to God in all, you mean I should thank God for World War II? I should thank God for all that pain and sorrow. I should thank God for what happened with Adolf Hitler and blah, 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 blah. I should thank God for, for fighter planes. And, and well, I think if you ask Charlie Brown uh, at that banquet, um, was he thankful for all those things? I think he would have said, yeah. Because that's how I came to know Franz Stigler. <laughs> and Franz Stigler is just a dude. He's just a guy. But Jesus is God in flesh. Jesus is the word of love come to you. Jesus is sovereign and he is powerful enough to write a story of mercy in everyone's life. And so when you ask the question, why this suffering, why this pain, why? Well, God's writing a story. He's writing a story of mercy and he's writing it in your life and, and he's creating. And what is he creating? What is he creating in this world? Faith! Because <laughs> faith is salvation. You can't stand before God without faith. And so he's creating faith. May you believe the gospel. And not only will you enjoy God, but you'll enjoy the ride right now. In his name, amen.